Well, that was a perfect segue to the subject of prayer, which is our topic for the night. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Um, This is the next to last Wednesday night in the the parables in Luke. We're not going to quite get finished because there are more than 13 weeks in the parables. Um, We're going to get pretty close. There's um, some parables in... um, a parable, rather, in Luke 19. There's a parable in Luke chapter 20. Um, we're going to look at prayer this evening, and uh, next week we'll finish up in, um, in Luke chapter 18. So we're going to be about two or three parables short of finishing. Uh, I believe the first Wednesday, uh, Dr. Young is back here, or there's a special speaker. I think there's still some, some question as to which that's going to be, but... Um, I don't know about you, probably the, the weeks have um, drugged by for you, but they've flown by for me. Um, but this is a great parable this evening and a perfect, I think, a perfect fit for the topic that the Parkers shared with us. And let's start in verse 1, Luke 18, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 8. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man, Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Even though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Uh, Mrs. Parker said something that illustrates probably the heart of what prayer really is. Uh, And it was in the the context or the issue of having children. and, um, And finally she came to the posture of submitting to the Lord's will, not knowing entirely what the Lord's will was, but... But her heart became one of acceptance, of compliance. Lord, I'm willing to yield whatever you desire to do in our lives in this regard. Uh, George Mueller. Have you ever heard of George Mueller? Does that name ring a bell, George Mueller? He was known for his prayer life. He started an orphanage. He was English. Um, So the story goes, he never took a public offering, never appealed for funds. He simply prayed and trusted God to provide for the need. I remember reading one time that George uh, Mueller said that his habit in prayer had been to read Scripture until his heart was warmed, warmed toward the Lord, warmed in the presence of God. And then he would take the Scripture and he would begin to formulate the Scripture and make that his prayer. And his his, uh, real effort, he said, in prayer was not to obtain his will. That was not the aim in his praying, but to get his heart in a posture of submission so that he was willing to accept the will of the Lord and do so gladly and joyfully. I think probably that's close, really, to the heart of prayer. Prayer is an important subject. It's an important issue in the life of the Christian. And this parable, as stated in the opening verse, is designed by Christ to encourage us in the matter of prayer. Real prayer, consistent prayer, effective, fervent prayer is a challenge. Um, I'm not personally acquainted, beginning with myself, of anyone who's ever said, I am thoroughly satisfied with my prayer life. It is always a challenge, I think, to have a vital relationship with the Lord that evidence its, evidences itself in being in the Scripture 
uh, and, and having a heart that responds to the Lord in petition as well as in praise. And yet in this particular parable, Jesus is encouraging disciples in every generation. You could paraphrase verse 1 where in the text before us, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. You could almost paraphrase this by saying that it's necessary to pray without giving up. To pray without giving up. The word lose heart here literally means to give in, to despair, or to become discouraged. To give in, to give up, to despair to the point of discouragement. And this is in relationship or in association with the subject of prayer. We started at the first of the summer. We started in Luke chapter 8, and the theme of the summer series has been priorities in the kingdom of God by looking at the parables of Christ. And the opening parable was the parable of the sower and the seed and the soil and how people respond to the gospel. And we've looked at the gospel. We've looked at mercy ministry. We've looked at at, um, heavenly treasures. We've looked at an eternal perspective. And we've come here to next to the last Wednesday night to once again address the issue of prayer because God has so orchestrated the advance of His kingdom that an important means of kingdom, uh, kingdom advance is through prayer. An important channel of blessing in our own lives that God has ordained as a means of blessing is prayer. I had lunch today, a, a huge lunch, in fact, just too much food at Benny Hanna's. I was an invited guest of someone who's relatively new at Grace Ivan, and they wanted me to meet uh, their brother-in-law who's involved in missions in Ukraine uh, with a street children's ministry there. And this uh, gentleman had with him Nikolai and Natasha, two people who started the ministry and through whom the Lord is doing great things. And this is what Nikolai said to me. He said, I was an atheist. Uh, I was from a Greek Orthodox background. A man shared the gospel with me, a businessman. I mocked, I made fun. But slowly God began to change my heart. I came to Christ. I repented of my sin. And I was pursuing business and was very successful in business. But I knew that the Lord wanted more from me. And I began to pray and say, Father, whatever you desire for me to do, whatever your will is for my life, make it plain and I will do it. And he said, God birthed this vision in my heart for street children there. I, I just tell you that story fresh from lunch today because this is, a, this is a means through which God advances and enlarges his kingdom is through the submissive prayers of his people. And Jesus is underscoring the willingness of God, the willingness of God to respond in prayer, and he does this in the context of this parable. He gives the parable to disciples in every generation who need fresh encouragement to pray, to trust the Lord, to commit our way unto Him, as, as uh, Jay started to say and as Mrs. Parker finished uh, this evening, but to commit our way to the Lord, to trust in Him and believe that God's going to make the way plain before us. Uh, the Pharisees, let's look at the larger context here. Look back at chapter 17 for just a minute because there's a whole flow of thought here that I don't want you to miss that leads up to this parable. In chapter 17, the Pharisees, in verse 20, had asked Christ when the kingdom would come. They had asked Him about the coming of the kingdom. And they asked from insincere motives, as apparently most of their questions were driven by insincere motives. They were looking for a kingdom that would be self-serving. They were looking for a kingdom that would elevate them in the eyes of of, uh, other lesser believers. And so they posed the question, In Luke 17, verse 20, when will the kingdom come? 
And in the latter part of verse 20 and verse 21, Jesus answers their question. He says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That is, you can't quantify the coming of the kingdom. It does not come through date setting and calculation and and, uh, fallen man's perceptions. In fact, in verse 21, he says, nor will they say, see here or see there, for the kingdom of God is within you. Now, it depends upon your translation. Um, Some translations, instead of saying the kingdom of God is within you, it's going to say the kingdom of God is in your midst. And that's true. The kingdom of God was present then, inaugurated by the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. After he was baptized by John and the Holy Spirit descended upon him and anointed him with the fullness of the Holy Spirit to his office as Messiah, as Redeemer, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he began calling people to repentance. So the kingdom of God was present then. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. That's exactly what he's telling disciples in every generation. That the kingdom of God is present now. But there is a very real sense in which we're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom when the King of kings and the Lord of lords returns in unparalleled power and incredible glory. There are 27 New Testament books. 25 of the 27 explicitly state that the king is coming again. When Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts 1, uh, the angels said to the, the disciples who, of course, were awestruck, they said, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus is coming as he ascended in like manner. We believe that, that Jesus Christ is coming again. But we're in this, this long interval period in which the kingdom of God is being enlarged by the proclamation of the gospel. It's being enlarged as people are brought to faith and repentance, as they're submitting to King Jesus and owning Him as their Lord and as their Savior. And in this same passage leading up to the parable, though, Jesus says that there is a coming day of consummation when He will come back, this indeterminate period of time. Uh, for example, uh, verse 22, Luke 17:22. He said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them. In verse 24, For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, in verse 25, He must suffer many things, be rejected by this generation. And then Jesus gives two characteristics of the days prior to His coming. He says that it's going to be as in the days of Noah. When people were marrying, they were giving in marriage. Noah had been preaching righteousness and calling people to repentance for 120 years. And suddenly one day, the first drops of rain began to fall and judgment fell. Jesus says it's going to be like the days of Lot, just prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. People marrying, giving in marriage, going on about their business, and suddenly fire fell from heaven. One of these days, there's going to be a cataclysmic upheaval and Christ is going to come back and there will be the fullness and the consummation of the kingdom and all the promises of Christ will be fulfilled when He comes as the lightning flashing from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven. We're living in this long, indeterminate period and this is somewhat of a digression and and I don't want to be uh, controversial in the statement, but... Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 1 
Paul is warning Timothy, as he's warning believers in every generation, that the last days will be characterized by perilous, or some translations would say stressful times. There is a very real sense in which we've been in the last days since the ascension of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in this long period while we're awaiting the return of Christ, we're to give ourselves to the advancement and enlargement of the kingdom. And one of the ways that we do this is through effective, persistent, fervent prayer. And Jesus takes this wide sweep of redemptive history of of His crucifixion, His ascension, this long period, and He leads the disciples in verse 18 to this parable about prayer. There are two characters in this parable. There is a very persistent widow woman and what the parable calls an unjust judge. And this widow woman apparently had suffered some kind of grievance. She had been harmed in some way. She had been victimized in some way. In Bible days, in the first century and in Old Testament times, for a woman to be deprived of her husband would bring her into great economic jeopardy and adversity, particularly if she had no children. If you read through the the Old Testament law, you read through Deuteronomy, for example, you read through Leviticus, um, you discover that God is often very concerned for two classes of people. He's concerned for the widows and He's concerned for the fatherless because they were often victims of social injustice. If you read through the prophets, particularly a prophet like... um, Micah, you can see that God is particularly concerned for social injustice to the fringe, to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the oppressed, to the widow and the fatherless. And so here's this lady who's been victimized by what is described in the text as an adversary, and she comes to a judge who is unjust. In fact, verse 3 in the text says that he did not fear God and he had no regard for man. And yet this widow woman kept coming persistently asking for justice. And finally in the text, the the unjust judge begins to relent and uh, he begins to give in. He initially refuses to help, but she doesn't give up. In verse 4, his attitude doesn't change. He still didn't fear God, regard man. But he ended up in verse 5 doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. He gave her the relief that she wanted so he could have peace. Now, here's the question. What, does, what in the world does that have to do with prayer? You've you got to get this. In the application of the parable in verses 6, 7, and 8, Jesus is teaching by contrast. And here's the contrast. He is telling us that God is nothing at all like this unjust judge. If this unjust judge who had no fear of God, no compassion, no interest, on uh, the adverse circumstances of this woman, if he finally gave in, how much more will the God of heaven and earth, who's plenteous in mercy, who's abounding in goodness and kindness, how much more will this God hear the cries and the prayers of His people and answer and meet their needs? How much more? You can't even begin to calculate how much more. Jesus is teaching by by a strong contrast here, that God is nothing like this unjust judge. If even a godless, wicked judge eventually gave in, how could the the God of all glory 
withhold good things from His children when they cry out unto Him. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He's saying that God will avenge His people. God will answer quickly. Now, admittedly, as the Parkers had indicated this evening, our timing, our calendar, our schedule uh, often doesn't correspond to God's timing and God's schedule and God's calendar. And here we have to trust that God actually knows what's best. What can we learn then from the parable? Let me give you a couple of applications in regards to prayer that I think grow directly out of the parable. The first thing... The first lesson we could learn is about the character and the nature of God. God is completely unlike the just judge, totally unlike him. If a, if a wicked judge who cares nothing for uh, people's circumstances is eventually able to give in, how much more would God give in? That's lesson number one, the character of God. The character of God and the nature of God is an incentive for persistent prayer. We can trust him. We can bring all of our requests before him. And the entire Bible substantiates that point. Uh, numerous examples. You can read through Psalms, which I would encourage you to do. And you'll find uh, often David crying out to the Lord in seasons of a great adversity. Some of David's most poignant uh, Psalms are written while he's on the run from Saul in the, the 50s section there, like Psalm 56 and 57. Psalm 63, for example, he's running for his life from a crazed lunatic by the name of Saul. And David is crying out to God in the wilderness. Early, O God, he says, will I seek you. And often in the middle of that prayer, you can hear the tone change in the prayer because God has poured out fresh supplies upon David. There are some great Old Testament examples. I I cannot commend too highly to your reading uh, uh, large portions of the Bible because it gives you a historical perspective on how God has worked throughout redemptive history. Let me share two examples with you. A man by the name of Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles chapter 20, not exactly a section of Scripture that you normally read from, Second Chronicles chapter 20, but he faces incredible opposition. He faces an army with superior uh, manpower. He's backed into a corner, and this godly king looking at the circumstances says this, He says, O God, you see the circumstances of our lives. And are you not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are you not a covenant-keeping God? Did you not give us this land and promise this to us as our inheritance? We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And God brings a great victory. But here's what he says to Jehoshaphat. The battle is mine and the victory is yours. Folks, you don't have to look any further than Calvary. You don't have to look any further than the resurrection to know that God intervenes in human events, that He intervenes in our lives decisively and savingly so. God intervened in Jehoshaphat when He took the circumstances and brought them before the Lord in fervent, persistent, and believing prayer. Let me give you another example. Second Kings 19, a king by the name of Hezekiah. Um, I was trying to think who wrote this poem. I think it was Tennyson maybe that wrote this poem about Sennacherib's um, army. Uh, Sennacherib, the vicious Assyrian, um, had weapons of mass destruction and um, had poised uh, the arrows at Jerusalem and was threatening. In fact, he sent emissaries and he said some very crude things to the representatives of Hezekiah. 
And here's basically in, in polite, everyday English what he said. He said, I'm going to besiege this city, and before I'm done with you, you will eat your own refuge unless you come out and surrender. And they went back, and they told Hezekiah. And Sennacherib even sent a letter in which he spelled out exactly what he was going to do to Hezekiah, to the princes, and when he came into Jerusalem, how he was going to destroy the city. And here's what Hezekiah's response was. He took that letter into the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before God. And he said, read this, O God. You hear their threats. You see what they've said. Is this not your city? Have you not made promises to us? O our God, hear and answer. And again, God brought a great deliverance. You can find that same kind of pattern over and over. In fact... um, Turn over to, hold your place here and turn over to Psalm 107 for just a minute. 107th Psalm. This is a great psalm and it's punctuated repeatedly by a refrain throughout the psalm. There are four, um, four pictures of God's delivering power in Psalm 107. Four pictures of God's delivering power. And every one of them is punctuated then with a call to worship. And a call to praise. It starts off, Psalm 107, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He's redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. And then there are four circumstances in which God intervened in the lives of His people. Four pictures of God's delivering power. And we're, obviously, there's four or three verses here. We're not going to go through all of them, but... um, Look at verse 4. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And He what? He delivered them out of all their distresses. You'll find that three other times in here where God's people in seasons of great adversity and distress, where they're crowded by circumstances and they're overwhelmed to the bitterness of their souls and they cry out to God. And God in His grace and His mercy sin's deliverance. God in His grace intervenes in their circumstances and brings them through. And the end of that in every one of these instances is this call to worship. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His mercy endures forever. This one psalm illustrates um, scripturally what... Jesus is saying in Luke 18, God is not at all like this unjust judge. He will hear and He will respond in power and He will respond in grace and our response to that ought to be, oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His mercy endures forever. David, 1 Samuel 17, goes out and fights Goliath who was nine feet plus tall. His armor weighed over 200 pounds. His spear was like a weaver's beam. And here's this little shepherd kid going out there with five stones and a sling. And Goliath says, Today I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air. And David, with a quick comeback, says, You come at me with a sword and a shield, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And this day, God will deliver you into my hand. It's not about David being all-powerful and everything, but it's that God's all-powerful. It's that God decisively intervenes in the circumstances of our lives that His name might be praised and we might have fresh incentives 
to take all of our concerns and our burdens to Him in prayer. Turn back to Luke chapter 18. So the first lesson we could take away from this, that persistent prayer is not rooted in us. It's really rooted in the faithfulness of God. To pray with perseverance, we have to find some source of encouragement other than in ourselves. And folks, that encouragement is found in the person of God. It's not found looking within. And it's not found looking around. It's found looking up in the face of this God who keeps covenant mercy to a thousand generations. We've already seen encouragement to pray. You're, you're back at Luke 18, I hope. Just turn left just a minute to chapter 11. A uh, number of weeks ago, I keep looking at my wrist and my watch is in my pocket. Uh, a number of weeks ago, we were in Luke chapter 11 where uh, Jesus had finished praying and his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gave them this model prayer, what is more properly called the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. Um, And then Jesus gives them this encouragement to pray. And look at Luke chapter 11, verse 11. He says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Folks, the obvious answer is no. Those of you who have children, your children come in and they're hungry. Mom, Dad, could I have a piece of bread? Well, here, chew on this rock. Could I have, a, could I have some fish from the dinner table? No, take this snake instead. You say, well, that's ridiculous. That's the point Jesus is making. If we earthly, flawed parents know how to give good gifts to our children how much more how much more will God give good things to his children and those who ask him and in this passage in Luke 11 Jesus specifically refers to the Holy Spirit that God will give the Holy Spirit might God give us daily a fresh supply of his Holy Spirit we're baptized one time into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But we have to be continuously filled and refreshed by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you pray and ask God for fresh outpourings and fresh fillings and fresh renewal from on high. And God will abundantly answer that need and that request. All right, now let's go back to Luke 18. First incentive to pray then is found in the character of God. A man by the name of Matthew Henry. Anybody ever heard of Matthew Henry? old commentator, I think 18th century, something like that. Um, Just real quick, Matthew Henry commenting on this passage says, the widow was a stranger to the judge, whereas God knows his people. He knows you intimately. I'm adding this. He knows you intimately and precisely. You know that Psalm 139 says that if you ascend to heaven, God's there. If you make your bed in Sheol, God is there. If you go to the furthest part of the reaches of the inhabited earth, guess what? When you get there, God is there. There's no place where you can outrun the grace of God, the goodness of God, the power of God. The widow's a stranger, but God knows his people personally and intimately. The widow was alone, but God's praying people are many. The widow came to a judge that kept her at a distance, but God invites us to draw near to a throne of grace and full assurance. And folks, not only do we draw near, but you know what, when we get there, what we call him? 
Not high-flown, academic, technical names for God. We call Him Father. We call Him Father. Think about that. The Creator of the ends of the earth. The Sustainer. The Maker of all things everywhere that's holding everything together is our Father. And we can come to Him and cast our needs and our concerns before Him. The widow had no representative before the judge, but we do, Christ, our advocate and mediator. The widow received no encouragement from the judge, but we have great encouragements from God our Father. The widow's prayer was so much noise to the judge, but the Scripture says in Proverbs 15:8 that God delights in the prayers of His people. He delights in the prayers of His people. The widow could go to the judge only at appointed times, but we can go day and night. Because Psalm 37 says that God's eyes are upon the righteous and His ears are always open under their cry. There's a second thing you can take away in terms of application from this passage. We learn a lesson about perseverance that provides fresh incentives to be a praying people. First of all, you can be certain that as you open your heart to the Lord, and submit your requests and needs to Him, that your prayers are heard on high. They're heard because of Jesus. They're heard because of our faithful intercessor. Admittedly, we don't always know what to pray for or how to pray. Frankly, I don't. And Paul said that in Romans 8.26. Dr. Young covered that before we, we broke for the summer from our Roman study. Where in Romans 8.26, we don't know how to pray and what to pray, but the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and our infirmities with groanings which cannot be uttered. There have been times where your soul was so overwhelmed that all you could make was an in, almost an inarticulate groaning before God. But even in those times, the Holy Spirit is able to take that inarticulate petition and to make it into something meaningful before our Father. You can be certain that God is interested in justice being carried out in the earth and that justice will be carried out in His time. I, I know we've got a great missions ministry at Gracie Van, but my heart was struck today. In fact, to be honest with you, I had to wipe tears from my eyes at the table at Benihana today when I saw these children who live in sewers in the Ukraine. They're fatherless, they're estranged, have no family structure. They've either been abandoned by their parents who are drug addicts or alcoholics or or just left out on the street, their parents didn't want to care for them anymore. And I had to wipe tears as I heard this. And God does not have to be twisted into acting or manipulated into acting in cases of social injustice. You can find God's intervention all over the Bible for weak, deprived people. How God comes on the scene to show His grace and His power. And wherever the gospel is being preached in power and a harvest is taking place, you will find that social justice is also taking place as well, where the needs of the whole person is being met by gospel ministry. Sometimes we're sinfully impatient with the Lord, at least I am. But you can be certain that God hears our prayers. You can be certain that God's ears are attuned to the cries of those who are being oppressed, who are victimized in some way. Abraham, standing before the Lord in Genesis 18, posed an interesting question. He said, Shall not the God of all the earth, the just judge of all the earth, do what is right? Can you trust the Lord? 
Just answer that in your own heart. Can you trust Him? Is it conceivable that this just judge of all the earth would ever do what was wrong in His eyes? I think I've said this before on Wednesday night, but holiness is a leading attribute of God. It's, It's the one adjective that's affixed to God's name more than any other. No other attribute of God is is trebled. That's why He's called holy, holy, holy. It's cubed because He's infinitely holy. That means that every exercise of God's power, every exercise of His wisdom, every exercise of His goodness is wholly in line with His character and His eternal purpose. So when we pray, we can trust that God will do what is right in His sight. You can be certain that when you pray, God's purposes and salvation will be fulfilled. I've had you to turn several places. You don't have to turn there. But I love this passage in John chapter 6 because it points to the sufficiency of Christ to save. You know it. John six thirty-seven. Jesus said that um, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. And all that the Father gives to me, I will raise up at the last day. What is he saying there? He is saying that the saving purposes of God will be fulfilled in your life. And there's not enough devils in hell to stop the saving purpose of God ultimately in your life. All that Christ has saved will be raised up at the resurrection in power and in great glory. There's just no stopping the hand and the purpose of God. I don't know about you, but this encourages me in my prayer life. And I hope it encourages you in yours. That when you come before the Lord, you're coming before one whose ear is not deaf. His arm is not short. But he's able to do far beyond what you and I could think or imagine. And his ears are open unto us as his children. And He's able to do so much more than we would even begin to rehearse before Him in prayer. You can be certain that as we continue to wait on the Lord in prayer and practical obedience, whether we're concerned about starting a family, we're concerned about our children who may not be walking with the Lord, we're concerned about financial issues, we're concerned about the launch of a new ministry or a new vocation or God's call upon our lives, whatever it is, that as we wait on God in prayer and practical obedience, that God will sustain us in grace and mercy. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes his life as an apostle. It's a grim picture, folks. It's an autobiographical sketch. Here's the kinds of things that Paul recounts. He says that three times I was beaten with rods, Five times I received 39 stripes. Once I was stoned and left for dead. I've been among false brethren. I've been stranded in the deep. I've been without food. I've been without proper clothing. I've spent many a sleepless night. I've had the weight and the concern of God's people upon me as a result of these three missionary trips and all this church planning that's been going on. And then on top of that, when he gets into chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, he says... I'm also wrestling with a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me or to strike me repeatedly. And I've sought the Lord. Three times I've pleaded with God, deliver me from this. And three times God has had the same answer. You know what the answer is? Anybody? My grace is sufficient for you. 
in those seasons of indeterminate waiting, while we're waiting for God to bring the answer, while we're waiting for God to further His plan, God says, my grace will sustain you. My mercy will uphold you. Because in all this process, if I understand the Scripture, God is working in each of our lives an eternal weight of glory. I am so rooted to the terra firma. Um, I um, had um, a great excitement today. I received an email from Fort Myers, Florida, where an acquaintance of mine has season's tickets to the UT Vols. Can you imagine all the way to Fort Myers, Florida? 800, 900 miles away from the Vols, he's got season's tickets. He says, I'm not going to the Memphis game November 12th. Do you want them? I nearly swooned. <laughs> Nayland Stadium on a Saturday afternoon. Well, let me tell you by contrast. God's infinitely more concerned about my heart and my walk with Him and the character and nature of Christ being formed in our lives than me going to that Tennessee football game as much as I'd love to go. I just find that often my concerns are rooted to earth. And they're often matters of comfort and convenience and feel-good issues for me. But you know what the end of salvation is, don't you? It's not personal happiness, living a self-actualized, fulfilled, successful life by earthly standards and measures. You know what God's saving end in your life is? It's that you and I be conformed to the image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will use prayer. And God will use His Word. And God will use the fellowship and company of brothers and sisters in Christ. And God will use every good and every adverse circumstance in our lives to promote that one great end that we bear the image and the reflection of Christ. I've told this story so many times. I'm certain I've told it here. I'll close with it. When Melinda and I were dating, um, we went to this craft show. This was um, 81, November 81. Um, and now I can candidly admit that I was not personally interested in crafts. But it gave me a chance, Jay, to walk around for an hour or two and hold her hand. I was very interested in that. So we'd walk around this craft place, but I found a guy there who was um, a woodcarver. Fascinating, because I, I just have no ability at all in that regards. And so I watched him silently carve out of blocks of wood, Indians and cowboys and bears and horses. And finally I said, sir, may I ask you a question? And he didn't even look up. He said, sure. I said, how do you do that? He reached under the table and he took a block of wood and he put it up on the table there. And he said, what do you see, son? I said, a block of wood. He said, that's your problem. He said, I see a bear and I carve away everything that's not a bear. When God looks at us, he sees his son. And he's in the process. It will not be complete in this life. It will only be complete when the king comes back. But he's in the process of carving away everything that's not like his son. And he'll use prayer. And he'll use the word of God. He'll use the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. And he will use every circumstance in our lives to further that great end. Can we trust him?
in prayer? You bet we can. The whole redemptive record of the scripture says that we can. And we can find in this parable this evening fresh incentives to persist in those long seasons when we're waiting for the answer. There's a final exhortation that comes at the end in verse 8. Jesus poses the question, when the Son of Man comes, not if, but when, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Rather than encouraging us toward date setting and idle speculation about when that time may be, the real question is, what's the state of our hearts and our lives? When Christ comes back, what will be the state of our faith? What will be the state of our hearts then? That's the pressing concern. Not when the King comes, but will we be ready when He does come? Father, we thank You and we praise You this evening that You have given us um, such enormous privileges, gospel privileges, of being called out of darkness into Your kingdom and putting Your Spirit within us and giving us the whole of Scripture as a written record and an ever-present reminder of Your goodness and of Your intervention in the lives of Your people. May we find in this parable this evening fresh reasons to cast our concerns and our burdens upon You. May we find fresh incentives to persist in prayer, believing that You're able to do far beyond all that we can imagine, even beyond what we can ask. And might You use our prayers and the answers that You grant to further the work of Christ in our lives and through our lives around the world. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.